1: Hello, and welcome to Unheard News. I'm Freddie Sayers. Here, we like to cover the important things that happen and occasionally the important things that don't happen. Because China has reopened after over three years of being stringently locked down. And there's a little bit of silence as to what's actually happened there. So we thought we would dig into it with our friend of the show and China watcher, Louis Vincent Gave, who joins us from Hong Kong. Hi, Louis. Hi, good to see you, Freddie. Good to see you too. So I want to just start by going through a couple of media reports and compare them to what we know about reality in terms of what's been going on in China for the past few weeks. The Western media has been really excited about various projections and models that show eye-watering numbers of tragic deaths of hospitals being overflowed. And I just want to see how much of that actually came true when China finally put an end to its three year long lockdown. There was one model by a company called Airfinity, which is a a huge independent health intelligence provider, which of course got picked up across the Western media. They said that daily infections would be at 2.2 million, daily deaths would be at 25,000. And then they said, cumulatively, since the 1st of December, they were expecting 188 million cases and 1.38 million deaths. Let's see how the Western media covered it. Well, The Guardian says China hospitals extremely busy amid surging wave of COVID infections. The Economist said inside China's COVID ravaged hospitals, Chinese doctors are battling panic, overcrowding and their own fevers. Also Wall Street Journal China's precarious moment COVID everywhere. The Telegraph, this is the UK Telegraph. In these two streets alone, 20 people died from COVID last month. Time magazine came in as COVID-19 barrels through China. Some are turning to black market amid drug shortages. Reuters new COVID model predicts over 1 million deaths in China. CNN, China could see nearly a million deaths as it exits zero COVID study says, and onwards and onwards and onwards. So there is a real tilt towards numbers that were higher than even the World Health Organization now predicts couple of other things before I get into it with you, Louis, which is, I've noticed some media outlets being increasingly creative, given the absence of high quality information about what is actually happening in China, about how they can measure what they are sort of wanting to be, I guess, a, a, a very grave um, disaster as the lockdowns finally end. Um, the New York Times, for example, um, did a really unusual study, which they made a big splash out of, counting the scholars who were dying. So they counted obituaries, I'm not sure if you saw this for academics from the the, the state backed Chinese Academy of Engineering and Chinese Academy of Sciences, and were counting individuals who had passed away as if this was a scientific way of of measuring the number of people who died at the end of the lockdowns. And then when you look at the detail, a lot of these academics are literally in their 90s. Um, October, they said four, four academics died, and they were aged 92, 90, 99 and 90. Um, November, there were five deaths aged 80, 102, 96, 89 and 100. But it seems for a a newspaper that prides itself on scientific method and accurate reporting, it seems a strange way to estimate the number of Does the
0: New York Times still pride themselves on that.
1: Well, they they say they do. um, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, I'm gonna throw one more example at you before I'm gonna let you speak. And that is the um, Washington Post.
0: Another paper that prides itself on accurate accuracy, and uh, scientific rigor.
1: Well, increasingly, I think you're right to, to be sceptical about that. Um, their method for uh, estimating the death tolls in China was satellite images showing crowds at China's crematoriums. Now, this is something we actually saw a lot during the uh, pandemic. I'm not sure if that looks like a crowd or not. Um, But they then rang up the receptionists at a few crematoriums who said they've been busy. And this becomes a front page news story. So I guess my point is, laboriously perhaps expressed that it felt like the Western media really wanted it to be a bit of a disaster for China, when they finally decided against continuing their lockdowns. Um, They were finding any scraps of evidence to prove that and you're paying close attention not only to the health numbers because they affect the markets and your business, GavCal, you're sitting there in Hong Kong now, is, is all about China watching. What's your assessment of what actually happened in the real world?
0: Look, I would say my uh, biggest surprise out of everything you've, you've, you've highlighted is that all these media outlets, whether the New York Times, the Washington Post, how come none of them commissioned Imperial College to run a model on what, uh, what the deaths uh, were, were going to be. They could have had much bigger numbers uh, had they just asked the right people. Um, you know, If they'd gone and asked uh, Dr. Neil Ferguson at uh, Imperial College, we could have maybe had more than a billion deaths in China by now. Um, now, the reality, <laughs> the, the reality is uh, the numbers of whatever you're going to do in China, the numbers are always going to be big just because your sample size is massive. Right. So um, it is possible. I'm not going to like dismiss it, that maybe half a million or a million people will have end up dying from COVID in China. But we also have to realize it's, you know, a sample size of one point two billion people. Um, the reality is if we look at the experience of pretty much any country uh, out there, um COVID was never the big killer that was sold to us in the first place. And the more the disease evolved, the less deadly it became. You know, the, the the alpha and delta variants were quite deadly. And then by the time you got to Omicron, it was massively contagious, but but not very deadly. And in fact, you know, by the time you got to Omicron, and to your point about the 95-year-old and 102-year-old scientists who perhaps were failed by COVID, um, you got to a point where the only people who died from COVID were 90 year olds and plus. But we also know that once you're past 90, you know, if you catch pretty much anything, if you catch the flu, there's a chance, there's a good chance, you you know, you're, you're, you're gonna get, go on the go, go on the wrong side. Just thinking about China,
1: what do we know? I mean, they basically started putting an end to the lockdown policies in November.
0: November. And so what we know, what we know is this, um, and we know this from foot traffic in shopping malls, and we know this from road traffic. We know that COVID probably peaked in China in terms of the number of infections. We peaked somewhere between late December and early January. Um, That basically mid December to mid January, everybody got sick. And, and the reason it ran through China so quickly much more quickly than pretty much any other country is twofold. First, Omicron is more contagious, less deadly, but more contagious. And secondly, there's a population density in China that you have in very few countries. You know, China is roughly the same land mass as the United States, but it's four times the population, and everybody lives on the East Coast because you can't live on the Tibetan Plateau. You can't live in the Gobi Desert. Um, and so it, it just ran through the population. And yes, I do believe there was a month... Where mid December to mid January, where everybody got sick, and now, where well, you're you're everybody
1: other side. got sick, everybody contracted Omicron, or, or there was a, a, a large degree of, of of that virus moving around. What do we actually know, though, about how sick people got and what the effect on hospitals were? Because again, Western media was absolutely wall to wall with. Pretty much anecdotal stories of hospitals being overwhelmed. There was occasional footage that would come of like a of a corridor in a hospital looking very busy, and it's very hard to know because we had the same thing in the north of Italy right at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was. It, it's now generally accepted that um, hospitals were sort of overflowing in northern Italy. I'm not sure exactly what the the truth is or how many hospitals it affected. What do we know about China?
0: Yeah, you know, I think if like you you can find some evidence some you know, cases, uh, I think in Beijing, I think in Shanghai, I think in countries where, sorry, in cities, not in countries, in cities where you have extremely dense population um, and where, frankly, you know, if you look at the past 20 years, when you arrive in China, you think, oh, this is a first world country. You know, you have a beautiful airport, a fast speed train that takes you into the city. It's absolutely, the infrastructure is first class. China's been very good at building the hardware, Building the software that goes behind it, putting in the doctors, the nurses, putting in the university professors. This thing is built over generations. You can build a university building, it doesn't mean you get a world-class university. Uh, you can build a hospital, it doesn't mean you have yet all the trained doctors, the trained nurses, etc. This takes many generations of one doctor training the next one who then trains the next one, etc. So China's grown very, very fast. And it's done a great job putting in the hardware, but the software hasn't followed, which was always the sort of argument for China staying locked down. Uh, They were worried, indeed, that the hospitals would become overwhelmed. Um, And I do believe that, look, there there were probably hospitals here and there that, uh, that did become overwhelmed. Having said that, again, Omicron just isn't that deadly. Uh, if you and I catch Omicron, we're not going to rush to the hospital. We're going to, you know, go to bed, we're going to have a 39 degree fever, and we're going to get over it, just like we used to get over the flu every winter. Uh, Where Omicron is deadly is really for older people, right? It's, um, and this is what all the statistics show. And so these are the people that are likely to show up at the hospital. And here, this is where you get to something that's very particular in China and why we'll never probably know what the real death toll from all of this is, is that China for the past 20 years, all the young people left the countryside and moved to the cities. And so you have a country that's 60% urban and very young and 40% rural and very old. So the people dying are living in the countryside um or potentially dying i'm not i don't think it's you know any, anything as bad as the western media makes it sound because mm. the, you know the western media loves a pandemic story it's it's a way to sell to sell a copy so they mm. you know they, they they love scare stories and nothing scares more than a pandemic so this was sort of the last kick of the last covid kick also they're looking at the economic data
1: if the scenario was as frightening in china as the western media make out with all these hospitals overflowing and people dying at such large volumes, it feels unlikely that the economic rebound would have been so swift. I mean, you don't kind of go out to restaurants and bars and shops if you're, you know, everyone you know is is in hospital and your grandmother's dying. So what, what has the economic
0: data showed? Um, here I would say, it's obviously bounced back and it's bouncing back strongly, but to put my cards on the table, I expected it to be even stronger than this. Um, and I think so far sort of two or three months in the economic recovery, it's good. You know, it's bouncing back stock markets, bouncing back all the, you know, all the ISM surveys, which is, you know, a sort of indicator of ex- expansion of growth or contracting growth have all been surprising on the upside. So all the, all the data is good. Um, but I expected it to be much stronger. And I, I tend to believe that the next three to six months um, are going to be absolutely epic because the amount of pent up demand, uh, you know, people haven't consumed for three years. For three years, they went to work and went home. Didn't go to the movies, didn't go to the restaurants, didn't go travel. Um, and that hasn't fully kicked in yet. It hasn't fully kicked in First, because people were sick. So you know, while you're sick, um, while you're sick, obviously you 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 stay at home. So number one. Um, number two, I think there's still a lot of impediments to, for example, people traveling. Um, here's a simple one: during COVID, a lot of people's passports expired, and it was impossible to renew your passport. So now you have hour-long queues in China at the passports office to. To get a passport, because people are keen to go abroad, and then once they get a passport, you can't get a plane ticket because there's not enough flights yet.
1: So the the, the infrastructure is not yet. It takes a while to ramp back up.
0: Ex- exactly, exactly. Um, and you know, during COVID, a lot of restaurants closed. So the restaurants that are that stayed open are completely full. Um, but if you look at overall restaurant spending, it hasn't surged the way you would expect it because. You know there's the restaurants that can that are open are full and then there's nothing else
1: i'm interested in what your assessment is on the damage to the chinese economy then because this is i mean as an experiment goes pretty much shutting down the country on and off for three years is about as it's like suffocating an economy i would imagine
0: it is bouncing back i was just a super bull on it and i remain a super super bull on it and it's um it's you know, it's good, but I was hoping for better. Um, now, to your point, um, as I look at it, and I think, why isn't it better? There's two two options. Once it's just a question of timing, and, you know, when you work on markets, the temptation is always to think, I'm not wrong, I'm just early. Um, and um, But you can do that for a little bit, but not for too long. The other possibility, as you point out, is that through the three years of COVID lockdowns, a lot of damage was done to to the Chinese economy, and so it's going to take a while to repair uh, some some of this uh, unfolding damage that uh, that was done. Um, I, I'm still, yeah, I'm I'm more in the the first camp. So, is this idea that that China, kind of rebounding China,
1: is going to kind of rescue the world economy and drive it back to growth? Is that is that accurate? Do you think? And and also, and do you think more like geopolitically, or in terms of overall power, China is going to be dented by this COVID experience, and and it's held held it back? Or do you think the sort of rise of China remains after this experience?
0: No, look, I think it was a massive policy failure. Uh, You know, the the lockdowns for three years, and it is going to be dented. Now, to your first point, does the Chinese economic rebound, uh, you know, foretell a uh, a greater global economic rebound, I think, absolutely. Uh, in my career, um, I saw China's rebound strongly in 2003, and that led to a global economic recovery. I saw it do the same thing 2009. I mean, 2009, everybody was talking, you know, looking at their shoes, saying we're facing a lost decade. It's going to be a new normal uh, of low growth, and you know, China China growth reaccelerated and led the whole world out of what looked like a, a massive depression. Um, and we had a little bit of that in 2016, and I think, to be honest, we're, we're gonna see it again. Um, here's perhaps a simple indicator of it, but if you look at the top 20 companies in the world by market cap, so, you know, your Microsoft, your Googles, your your Amazons, et cetera, there's only one of them out of the top.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: 20 companies by market cap in the world. There's only one of them that continues to make new highs every single day. It's LVMH. LVMH, of the the huge companies in the world, is the only, you know, all the other ones are down 10, 20, 30% from their highs. LVMH just keeps on ratcheting higher because... It's a China play um, because, you know, this belief that you're going to have all this money fr- flowing from from China into European luxury goods, into tourism, into commodities, into automobiles, into, you know, so many different things that, again, China hasn't done for three years. And, mm. and I, I firmly believe it, it, it will happen. And I believe it will happen all the more so since the Chinese government realizes it's made a mistake like it's in the awkward position of having managed to piss off both sides of the population regardless of what they feel about covid you know if like me you think covid was just a bad flu and we should have just never done all this stupidity then in china you're really pissed off that you've been on lockdown for three years you've had three years of your life you know stolen away from you but if on the other side you believed all the government propaganda and you were of the view that Covid is the new black plague. Then you're pissed off that you reopened so quickly, and that you know you didn't plan with Paxlovid, and you didn't buy the Pfizer vaccines or whatever else, whatever government propaganda you 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 pretend to believe in. Um, you're pissed off uh, that the Chinese government didn't go down that that particular path. So they're now they're now in a situation where they need to change the topic of conversation. You know, if you're the Chinese government, you want the chatter on Weibo or on WeChat to be about anything but COVID. Uh, And the easiest way to do that is to get an economic boom going, to basically make the reopening worth it. Um, And that's why... You know, in recent weeks, you've seen them basically take away all the restriction on real estate lending. They had pretty strict restrictions on real estate lending—a policy called the three red lines. Um, they said we're removing that, so banks, you can go out and lend to whoever you want. Um, they've recapitalized the local authorities to get the local authorities to do infrastructure spending again. They're basically pressing on every button and pushing every lever to adding fuel to get to get a boom going.
1: There's one other way that they could try and change the conversation. And, you know, probably what I'm gonna say, which is Taiwan. (laughs) Um, Because and there's a lot of talk about that at the moment, obviously with Russia. Um, I know that we spoke before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and you were a little bit more skeptical that that was going to happen at the pace it did. What 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 say you now about the risks of China going against Taiwan in some way, whether it's an actual attack or just a blockade or whatever?
0: All right. So let me make like a Jesuit priest and answer your question with another question. Why did China change its COVID policy? Because you had 50,000 people on the street, right? Um, they saw 50,000 people on the street and they folded like a deck of cards. Um, you know, they, they, they couldn't, they, they couldn't shift it fast enough. Um, which incidentally, you know, when Westerners think about protests in China, We immediately envisage Tiananmen Square in 1989, the students getting shut down because these were very powerful images. You know, the guy in front of the tank, et cetera. These were extremely powerful images. Um, The reality is you get tens of thousands of protests in China every year. They're not covered by the Western media because they're about local issues. It's about polluted water or local authorities who stole land or whatever else. And the modus operandi of the Chinese government is to give in. They blame middle management. They blame the local mayor. They blame the local party secretary. They fire them or just move them somewhere else. And they give in to the demonstrators, whatever the demonstrators want. I highlight this because if you've just had your big policy shift because you had 50,000 people on the street, do you now start a war? Well, if you're going to have 50,000 people on the street for COVID, you're going to have half a million if you start a war, because in China, remember, you've now had two generations of one child policy. You know, when I'm, I'm French um, and, you know, I come from a military family. And when we used to go at it against Germany, people in France had five, six, seven kids. You send four boys off to war, three come back or two come back. And it's very sad for the guys who don't, but life goes on. When you have one child, you don't send him to war. No way. No way. And so. That's for the like the, the particularities of, of Chinese society that make a, a military action in my mind very unlikely. But then you've got the military aspect of it, like invading Taiwan. I mean, we've seen how hard invading Ukraine is, and that's just sending tanks over wheat fields. Invading Taiwan, you got to cross over 100 miles of sea to land on one of three beaches because Taiwan only has three beaches, um, and invade a country that's a chain of mountains falling into the sea. You know. Mountains in Taiwan go up to 12,000 feet. It's like, this is like, Taiwan is a natural fortress. And are you gonna try to do this with an army that and a Navy and an air force that is completely untested? No, there's no way. What you're saying is that you think that
1: the sort of geology, the topography of Taiwan combined with with the sociological factors in China, plus the economic ones, you just don't buy it as a risk. I mean, we had John Gray on this program. We've had a bunch of people who have been really quite worried that some kind of China action against Taiwan could be imminent in the next year or two. You, you disagree?
0: I, I vehemently disagree. Uh, I would go one step further. You know, the U.S. Navy during World War II thought we're going to invade Taiwan and use that as a launch pad to then take over um, Japan because Taiwan was a, uh, had been a Japanese territory since 1895. Um, and the US Navy studied it and said, it's impossible to do. We're gonna bypass Taiwan and we're gonna go straight to Okinawa um, because invading Okinawa was a lot less hard than invading Taiwan. So now granted, you could say that was in 1945, we have different weapons now, etc. Now, to be clear, if China wanted to destroy Taiwan, it could, you know, it could just send nuclear bombs on it or uh, just, you know, uh, just bomb the hell out of it. But taking it, no, it's not gonna it's not it's it's not gonna happen. But I want to go back to 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 your first question on you know what does this COVID policy mistake mean for geostrategically for China? Does that mean that you know now that China's reopening is it arising, etc.? cetera? Um, if you're China, you have I think three key weaknesses that the Western world can squeeze you on. Now, the first weakness is your dependency on imported energy. Um, and I think that's being dealt with really rapidly thanks to the Ukraine war, basically. Because
1: they now have access to Russian energy.
0: Exactly. Uh, they can take over all of the Russian energy that used to go to Europe. You know, it, it, Now, you could tell me, well, the infrastructure is not there, etc. It's going to take time to build. And that's true. But then who's really good at building infrastructure quickly and cheaply? Uh, you know China. So that, that part of the equation I think is is going to get solved. The second big weakness of China is its dependency on the US dollar to fund a lot of its trade. Uh, and so if the US decided to do what it's done to Russia or Venezuela or Iran and say, you're not allowed to use the US dollar anymore, nobody can trade with China and US dollars, China would have a real quandary. Uh, now, so would the US because that would just lead to a complete implosion in global trade and could seriously undermine the U S dollars for the U S it could be like cutting your nose to spite your face, but that's a, that's a threat. Um, and then the third threat, which I think China didn't see coming is its dependence on foreign semiconductors. Right. Um, and that's where the U S decided to bring the battle. The U S decided, you know what, this is our comparative advantage. We're dominating the tech space. So we're going to squeeze China on semiconductors and we're going to cut them out, out of there. Now, this is where Taiwan came into question.
1: Right, because 90% of the world's semiconductors are made in Taiwan.
0: Oh, uh, and, and South Korea, Taiwan and South Korea. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, no. And the very high end is all made in Taiwan. So the view was, oh, if, now that the U.S. is cutting off China, uh, China from semiconductors, it's going to be very tempting for China to invade Taiwan to get to the semiconductors. Uh, to be honest, that's stupid. Because if China invades Taiwan, it does, you know, semiconductor plants are not oil wells. You know, if in Iraq invades Kuwait, they get the oil wells. If the US, If Taiwan, China invades Taiwan, they have a hole in the ground where a factory used to be called TSMC used to be. You know, it's like the factory has gone and the, 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 the semiconductor engineers are gone. So, you know, you don't invade Taiwan to get semiconductors. It, it just doesn't add up. Um, what you can do if you're China is you go to Taiwan and you go to TSMC and UMC, and you go to the engineers and you say you make a hundred i'll pay you 300 to move to the mainland and work for me and work for alibaba work for tencent work for smic uh, and develop new semiconductor solutions for china and you know it's an, not a hard pitch because culturally you know it's like moving from canada to the us for, you know it's same language same food um, this is where the COVID, this is where China shot itself in the foot with the COVID lockdowns. Um, I think China was doing this in spades before they decided to do the COVID lockdowns during the COVID lockdown. Now imagine you're a semiconductor engineer, like a high-end semiconductor engineer at TSMC. You make very good money. China comes over and says, I'll pay you three times as much. You think, oh, I'm going to move there. And then China shuts down. And now you're on lockdown for three years. You're like oh, screw this, I'm moving back to Taiwan. Um, excuse my French. Um, it's like, this doesn't work for me. Uh, so the, the COVID lockdown, I think, sets China back on one of its key policies, which is gaining semiconductor independence, because it can't get semiconductor independence on its own. It's got to go out and you know hire the talent, at least initially, to sort of give it the... the but
1: I guess going forward, if they're opening up again, they can begin that project anew. Yes,
0: and they will, it's just going to cost them more. Instead of paying three times, they to have to pay five times. But that's still cheaper than invading.
1: But so I'm gonna conclude in what I think is a bit of a more optimistic note than Louis, because what you're what you seem to be saying is, first of all, the disaster that was promised or warned about in China, as they opened up has not been as bad as some people feared the economy is gradually getting back to normal, even though not maybe as fast as you might have thought. But perhaps more importantly, by your judgment, the chances of an invasion of Taiwan are very slim, because you've pointed out there are various difficulties. And on the key question of semiconductors, the better strategy is to buy them by the companies by the staff by the experts rather than invade.
0: Much cheaper much cheaper to even if you're paying completely the wrong price for your engineers, you know, you have to go out and hire 100 engineers. Even if you pay five times 10 times the price, it's still going to be so much cheaper than invasion. Look at how much the invasion is costing Russia. Um, You know, it's and for, for what result in the end, no, no. So
1: China then stays friendly. It doesn't invade Taiwan, the economy bounces back and it drags the world out of this semi recession. And we're back to boom times. Exactly, but here's
0: on to this point, not everybody benefits the same from China's reopening, right? If you're an emerging market, you're probably going to benefit more. If you're Japan, Korea, you're right on the so right on your doorstep. I think if you're Europe, you actually participate in it. The guys who benefit the least is the US, because the whole you know trade friction, et cetera, that knife cuts both ways. For the past five years, every Chinese corporate, has spent the past five years trying to de-Americanize their supply chain, because nobody wants to be Huawei. You know, five years ago the U.S. government says no more semiconductors to Huawei, and Huawei basically is now a shadow of its former self itself. It just completely imploded. If you're uh, today a Chinese company, you live in fear that you could be Huawei next. So you want to make sure that everything in your supply chain doesn't use American components. Take automobiles as an example. In your typical car you have about three thousand dollars worth of chemical products and a lot of these chemical products have been produced by the u.s big chemical companies the dupont the dow chemicals etc because they have a huge comparative advantage given that they have such a cheap cost of energy in the u.s so you can produce chemical products at a much cheaper price so you know a lot of chinese corp- chinese autos would buy um u.s uh, chemical products but now if you're a Chinese auto producer, you, you worry, well, what if tomorrow the US decides no more chemical products to China? Maybe you're better off paying for BASF or Clariant or Sumitomo Chemical or you know somebody else. You pay a higher price, but you get greater security. And where are those companies then? Are they in Europe or elsewhere in Asia? Europe, South Korea, Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think today if you're China, your first choice, of course, is if I can find a Chinese producer, that's the best because then there's no there's um, nobody's going to pull the rug from under my feet. If I can't find a US uh, uh, Chinese producer then probably South Korea is going to be second best because you know the South Korea is never going to want to walk away from China it's too big a market and so on. Okay.
1: So you've so you've added a bit of a note of caution to my uh, optimistic No 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 conclusion. I'm super, well, in, I'm super in terms optimistic. Of, but in terms of the 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 world picture because yes you think China bounds back yes it sort of drags the world economy forward But the the shape of the power and the shape of the economic power that emerges after this slump is slightly different. And once again, it's skewed against America because Chinese companies have made themselves more resilient and are trying to opt out of American supply chains. So maybe it's better for the rest of the world.
0: I think so. Look, the the U.S. corporate's loss will be Japan's gain or it'll be Korea's gain or it'll be Europe's gain. And I think that's what the markets are reflecting, you know. Last year, European equities outperformed U.S. equities in spite of Ukraine, in spite of the fears of, uh, uh, you know, energy crisis in Europe. Um, And that the whole outperformance in Europe happened in the last two months of the year. Uh, It happened as China was reopening. China, Europe benefits from China reopening much more so than the U.S. So to your point, yes, you know. China reopening is good news for, for, for the rest of the world. Uh, it is a super important economy. Uh, so you, you you know China stopping being stupid is is great news. Um, but it's not great news equally for everybody. Some will benefit more than others.
1: Louis Gav, as always, a pleasure to hear your ideas.
0: My pleasure. Great to see you. Thank you very much. That was Louis Vincent
1: Gav, the co-founder of GavCal a company that observes what's going on in the economy and tries to look beyond the media spin at the fundamentals to find out what's really happening. They have a particular focus on China and he joined us there from Hong Kong. Don't say we never bring you good news. He was very bullish, not only about the reopening in China, The return to normal for the world economy, a little bit of a note of caution there that the U.S. may not be as much of a beneficiary as some other parts of the world. But overall, I think we have done our good news service for the month. Let's hope he's right. Thanks for joining. This was Unheard. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?